So really now is the time for small, sustainable brands to be seen and heard and make their mark and make some noise and grow, do what you can to grow and stay in business. And Because from a business point of view, there's an open window here for you. And if you're going to make it, you know, in the fashion world, you know, now is the time and now is the time to be heard. You know, once the big brands get it together, our window for being ahead of the curve will close. So now is the time for small companies. If they want to stay in the game, now is their time. Welcome to Mindful Business Founder, the podcast for fashion business founders seeking to build a meaningful and profitable business. I'm Liki Tang, and I'm here with you today to find out how mindful founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. Today's episode is the second part of the conversation with Janice Trace, founder of Connecticut Country Clothing. Connecticut Country Clothing is an equal luxury brand for women. Their flagship product is a blazer with an exceptional fit. In the first part of our conversation, we talked about Janice's love for the ocean, sustainability and fair trade, together with many other aspects of her business. Now, in this part of our conversation, we will dive even deeper into the business talk, ranging from Connecticut Country Clothing's very smart business model to why it is really now the time for small, sustainable brands to make their mark and to be ahead of the sustainability curve. If you still have some doubts and that you believe that you're too small to make a difference, you should definitely listen to this part of our conversation to understand why the window of opportunity for your fashion business is really now. So join me for this conversation with Janice Trace. You have a very unusual business model. You produce on demand. You have an on-demand production. Can you explain why you decided to have such a business model? Um, First, um, on-demand manufacturing is um, a godsend if you're a small business, a small fashion business. It makes complete total business sense um, because as a small, new, unknown business, which mostly is online, the last thing I would want to do is invest my limited funds in any amount of inventory without knowing what exactly is going to be appealing to a consumer or even who my primary consumer really is. Sometimes who you think your market is isn't who your market is. Um, I learned that when I had the online surf shop. I thought I was, you know, marketing my fellow surfers, but really my main customer were moms who wanted mm. to buy uh rash guards with SPF protection for their children. So I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so investing in inventory, that's a huge risk thing from a a business standpoint because a a fashion business has a, a lot of upfront costs. And just to get to the point where you have something that you can sell, but once you have that item that you can sell, you're still in the proof of concept stage. You know, you're still in the focus group stage of finding out if other people like what you like uh, or what you've done, what you've created. And you really don't know until you're out there. So investing in inventory would be such a waste of money. Uh, Most clothing manufacturers are not on demand. Uh, They require at least 
a manufacturing run of 50 to 100 pieces. Yeah. Uh, and that's a lot of money, even just to run 50 pieces. And this is actually the point when a lot of fashion companies crowdfund to pay for manufacturing. And so it just makes a lot more sense for me to keep fabric in inventory and, mm-hmm. and then sew the desired size in the desired style, in the desired fabric requested by the consumer. So it's very specific and the customer gets what they want and I'm not stuck with things that, you know, maybe the consumers don't want. And also on-demand manufacturing enables us to personalize the blazer a bit. The consumer can choose which lining they want, not just inside the entire blazer, but um, at the cuffs. They can have a different lining inside the cuffs. Um, So we provide this kind of uh, bespoke, options, which I think is nice. And, you know, I read that bespoke and customization and uniqueness is, you know, the future, but I I think it's now, but we'll wait. Yeah, we'll see. You know, uh, one issue also with shopping in in stores online or, or brick and mortar is that, you know, you search for garments you like, but maybe the store doesn't have your size in stock, or maybe they have your size, but they don't have the color you want. And who knows when or if they'll restock. So on-demand manufacturing solves that issue of being out of stock because we could just sew it right then and there. Oh, that's your size. That's the color. That's the style you want. Okay. You know, here it is. We could do it for you, you know. So we keep um, uh, predictable fabrics in inventory. And those fabrics, which we don't keep in inventory, we can get them pretty quickly. So that would cause a, a minor delay in production. But, you know, the person's getting a, a specialized blazer. And, and you know, I, th- I had thought that on-demand might cost me more per piece mm-hmm. for sewing. But um, the truth is that their pricing came in lower than estimates. And I get actually get more for my money because they are also my distributor and they provide uh, the mailers for mailing out. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, business-wise, it's great to not have inventory and environmentally, it's great to not have uh, inventory because the more you produce, the more waste there is on the cutting room floor. And then there's just, it's always a risk whether or not, you know, consumers are going to buy. And then when consumers don't buy, you know, the stores, they start discounting to move things off the shelf. And sometimes they're selling things you know, they're just trying to cover their costs, but some they wind up selling things below their ability to cover costs. And that's probably what the scenario is right now that's killing, you know, a lot of stores is mm. customers have just become so accustomed to the deep discounting and, and it's not it's not a sustainable business model. But you know, on demand manufacturing for small fashion business, it's a great option and not only as a business model, but for sustainability because it, it just saves in fabric waste and fabric ending up in a landfill and there's less shipping involved so there's less co2 from fuel emissions so again my on-demand manufacturer once they sew it up they send it to my consumer on my behalf so Mm. that is that's the savings in time that's savings in shipping costs which you know if if the items had to be shipped to me and then i sent them out then you know there's the cost of that shipping which would be passed on to the consumer's yeah, I mean, it's just all around less CO2 emitted, and uh, uh, it's just uh, it's a brilliant thing, really. I highly recommend it if any other small fashion companies are listening. And they're here in the U.S., yeah. I mean, there's something, there, I think there were mills like that in China, sort of, I think. But, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, there's on-demand manufacturing in the U.S. for 
those who are here. But even I think if you're in Europe, you know, with a small company, it's uh, not a big difference. Is your business as sustainable as you wish it to be? I think my garments and my business model are both really quite sustainable. Uh, there are two things which which bother me, and one is that I have to use a synthetic thread for sewing my garments. Cotton thread breaks in industrial sewing machines. The other thing uh, is that I still need to work out my packaging. As, as I mentioned, my on-demand manufacturer is also my distributor, and they provide mailers, and so that's pretty convenient. But, um, you know, I worked on packaging early on, but I, I still need to do more research because sometimes I receive goods that are in Echo mailers, and those mailers are falling apart. When I get my goods, they're like split up the side. So I don't have a lot of confidence just yet in Echo mailers. Um, and, and there are some mailers that, you know, they're made from interesting materials, but I fear that if they get wet, um, they might not hold up. And um, I, I would like to do boxes. I would like to be able to make very personalized box, mm -hmm. but that adds uh, cost to, to the consumer. So it's, it's kind of a conundrum. I, I, I need to figure this out and do it in such a way that's sustainable and doesn't drive up the cost to the consumer. So it's a, it's a challenge. What do you think that small and emerging brands have the ability to lead the sustainability movement or at least to participate in the sustainability movement? I think it's not necessarily that small brands uh, lead the movement, um, especially since so many small brands go unnoticed. And many large brands have made commitment goals for sustainability and targeting like 2025 or so, uh, if they can get the funding to transform their models to sustainable ones. For example, uh, large brands, they have to fully change their business and manufacturing models. If they start using organic cotton, that organic cotton can't be milled in the exact same machines that regular cotton is milled in, and they have to be stored separately. So uh, separate milling, separate storage, a lot of separate things. So so they have um, things to work out. And I'm just talking about organic cotton here, never mind other fabrics. But it's just that small brands, they're out in front of the curve right now. And it's an opportunity for them to carve out their position and make sure they do get noticed and do all they can to grow, even if it means somehow collaborating, which I think is a really great idea. You know, if it weren't for the collective growth and noise made by small brands, the fair trade movement and the fashion revolution, if there hadn't been the pivotal turning point when the Rana Plaza collapsed in Bangladesh, Bangladesh killing more than uh, 100 workers and I think injuring more than 2,500, then, you know, would we right now be discussing working conditions, fast fashion and fair trade right now? I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure. The response to the Rana Plaza has been by a lot of, you know, smaller businesses uh, making noise. I, I recall um, being at a fabric showroom a couple of years ago and asking to see only their cupros or organic cottons. They didn't have any organic cottons. And the 
the people at the showroom, they were nice, but they kind of smirked and said that uh, sustainable fashion has been talked about for well over 10 years and nothing had happened. You you know, they, they weren't taking uh, sustainable fashion seriously. But, you know, fast forward today, just a couple of years later, and sustainability in fashion is in the news. Um, partly because of organizations like Red Carpet Green Dress or the relatively new editor at UK Vogue who truly, truly cares about sustainability and is bringing it to forefront. Uh, Many universities uh, are including sustainability in their curriculums. I actually was just speaking to a very young girl who is a a micro-influencer and she's... um, She's a junior in college. And so I was talking to her about, you know, as an influencer, she herself is a brand and, you know, she's just starting out as an influencer. And I said, you you should really focus in on being an influencer for, you know, certain, certain types of products and things like that. And um, I told her, you know, in my case, you know, it's really helpful if someone cares about sustainability. And then, and then it turned out, she was like, Oh, I had this course in college and sustainability and blah, blah, blah. And, um, that actually really su- surprised me. Because I, I know that, that there are some universities that cover sustainability. A lot of mainstream America is not aware or on board um, about sustainability. In fact, just yesterday, I was speaking to a woman who has a little fair trade online shop, and she's in, I think she's like in Kansas. And um, she was saying she's she's all alone out there. Like she, uh, people just don't, they it's not on their head on their minds. It's not in the forefront of their thoughts. It's not an issue for them. So there's a lot of work to be done. With the big brands, I think it's going to be a while and it's going to be hard for the, for them um, because they have to truly change their models to become sustainable, both mm-hmm. business and, and the mechanics. Um, but, the, you know, they, they need to come forward. They need to, they need to, to handle it. But that's going to be a while before they do become, you know, truly sustainable. And in the meantime, um, there are a lot of small sustainable brands who it's easier for them to be fully sustainable and transparent at this point, except for maybe Eileen Fisher. She's, she's definitely ahead of the game. But so really now is the time for small sustainable brands to be seen and heard and make their mark and make some noise and grow, do what you can to grow and stay in business. And because from a business point of view, there's an open window here for you. And if you're going to make it, you know, in the fashion world, you know, now is the time and now is the time to be heard. So I would just say, you know, once the big brands get it together, our window for being ahead of the curve will close. Mm. So now is the time for small companies. If they want to stay in the game, now is their time. So because of your very innovative, very smart and very unusual business model. I guess that when you first started off, finding the right suppliers was quite difficult, wasn't it? Actually, uh, it, it wasn't difficult. <laughs> it wasn't. Um, I mean, there were some challenges. I did both online research and attended textile shows here in Los Angeles. And there's two uh, annual textile shows here. So, but even even with the convenience of living here where there are textile shows, I still needed to comb through like hundreds of vendors to find sustainable fabrics. You know, four years ago, vendors at shows, they just look at me like, you know, I was speaking some other language. They weren't conscious of 
sustainable fashion. But that that has significantly changed. Uh, there's one distributor whom I love, which I met at a textile show, and I purchased hundreds of fabric swatches from them. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually haven't purchased fabric from them because it's difficult to learn about their farms and mills. Um, I understand they need to protect their company's trade secrets, but at the same time, you know, I'm hesitant to purchase from them without real assurances about working conditions. With that said, many of their farms and mills are in Japan, and Japan has high standards for manufacturing, and their workers are paid well. So in this case, I may need to, if I move forward, I may need to trust the standards of the country. And, mm. and the distributor did promise to provide certifications after I purchased the fabric, which actually isn't unusual to get the certifications afterward. There is some risk involved here, uh, likely a low risk. And, um, you know, I just sort of have to be able to trust that uh, if they say a mill is certified that it is before I buy the fabric. But, you know, at these uh, textile shows, uh, now that sustainability is a hot topic, um, there are some vendors who try to take advantage of that and claim that some of their fabrics are sustainable fabrics simply because the fabric is cellulose-based and, you know, comes from a tree originally. But that's, you know, not what makes the fabric sustainable. It's how the fabric is made um, that makes it sustainable, what chemicals and dyes are used and what happens to those chemicals and dyes uh, in the water during and after the process. What brings you most joy with your business every day? Was it a last time I remember that you felt deeply proud of your work and uh, that you had the confirmation that you were doing the right thing with your business? Well, when you have a business, it's your baby. So there are a lot of like um, small wins that mean something to you that don't really translate to other people. But um, I think some of the bigger things that have made me really happy and proud is um, that Condé Nast loves my brand and, and actually some other publications, uh, publication houses uh, in the UK. So that was some very serious validation for me that I was on the right track. And uh, that that made me feel pretty good. You know, they like the uniqueness of my blazers. They like the artistic linings, the bespoke options, and that they're sustainable. So, you know, when Vogue calls, you answer. And then I think the other thing that really just made me happy was, you know, it was kind of a small thing. Well, it was for me, it was big. Um, but I had this uh, young friend and she told me she was a size eight. And so we put a size eight blazer on her and oh my God, it just, it like fit her perfectly. It looked so mm. amazing on her. And, um, you know, that still sticks with me that moment. Just, it was just like so glorious um, because women come in all shapes and sizes. Every time a woman tries on, you know, one of my blazers, even if they're the same size, it, it looks different on different women, but it fits them, you know, no matter what their different shapes are. And mm -hmm. that that's a big win for me is getting the fit right. We really got the fit down. And that that was a lot of work. You mentioned that you had an online business 20 years ago. What has changed in 20 years in the world of e-commerce? Everything. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like it's not the same world. It's really not. 
Um, yeah. Where do I start? Uh, first, there was no Shopify or, you know, these platforms that help you build websites. Um, there was no social media. And I kind of miss those days. <laughs> you know, there, there weren't a million people trying to hawk their goods and services to help you have greater sales and build funnels and email automations and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, my God, this stuff is so exhausting. Um, back then, since there wasn't a Shopify or the like, I spent $5,000 working with a web developer, designing and building a really rather extensive, beautiful website, which has also a back end for, for transactions. And at the time, I, I was working a full-time job, as I do now, and running my business on the side. And um, I had to, uh, at my lunch hour, run out to a local coffee shop to fax my orders to the manufacturers that I worked with. Because, you know, there were no smartphones, and I didn't know anyone with a laptop. The, those were pretty rare. I think they were still in their infancy. And also... Uh, for e-commerce, there weren't many payment gateways available mm. online sales. I, PayPal had launched just a year before I began building my website. So they were in their infancy and we didn't know anything about them either. So there were limited payment gateways and there was internet security in place, um, but it's security today, I think is much more sophisticated and helpful and uh, fraud alerts and things like that. It's just uh, so much better today. It was uh, pretty limited back in 2000. You know, again, there was security, but not like now. And after a couple of years with my online search shop, I was targeted by some credit card fraud ring out of Indonesia. And they ran like two credit cards through my website per minute for hundreds and hundreds of cards. Wow. Yeah, it was horrible, time consuming and and truly a liability. And um, one of the first cards that they ran went through and it charged. Mm. And I had to wait for the true owner to contact me so I could refund them because I had no idea who the actual owner of that credit card was. So my developer and I, we worked on security and no other cards successfully went through, but the fraud ring didn't cease trying. It was almost as if they had some kind of computer software running cards through my site. So, and then my payment gateway provider contacted me and threatened to shut down my ability to accept credit cards. So mm -hmm. at that point, I'd been in business for a few years and I, I was burning out um, and I didn't have a true plan for scaling or the funds for scaling. And, and again, like today, I mean, with the Internet, it's easy I mean, to run ads, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, blah, blah, blah. You know, we didn't have that back then. I, I ran ads in a, an East Coast surf publication. I mean, it was a great experience. I learned a lot. Everything, you know, I definitely got value from that experience that I've brought to my business today. And, um, and I have friends from that time that I met during my business. So, you know, that's always a good thing. What are the new developments in your business, new projects or new product launches? Well, uh, I, I have actually right now, I'm in process of designing some women's shirts and uh, I don't want to say too much about them because I was very open about the blazers I was designing in the in the very beginning and then like a few years later uh, in the beginning when I was designing my initial style it was you know longer and and relaxed and had a belt and and now if you look around that's the style so I'm like I'm not saying I set the trend but my older sister's like Janice I think you set that trend I was like no 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 <laughs> 
So I'm going to be doing women's shirts and um, I'm excited about that. Someone just yesterday shared with me a trend report for the 2020s. And one of those trends, I'm not going to reveal what it is, uh, really, really works for my brand and the shirts that I have in mind. So I'm kind of excited about that. And then uh, this year, I'm going to be working with some small influencers, and I have a celebrity influencer. So, so that's what's on the burner. It takes planning to get those things to where you want them to be. Where can people find you and connect with you? Well, my website is preferable, yes. Which is? Uh, that's www.ctcountry.com clothing. So just ctcountry.clothing makes it easier. And, um, you know, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and Twitter and LinkedIn. Yeah. But just go to my website. You can reach me there. Okay. Thank you so much, Janice. It has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. In this episode, what really resonated with me from my conversation with Janice is that small sustainable fashion brands not only can be part of the sustainable fashion movement, but also can be really ahead of the curve. Big brands, even though many of them have pledged to become more transparent and sustainable because of their size and higher volume of production, will need some time to adapt their business model to become more sustainable. So there's a big opportunity for smaller emerging brands, provided they get noticed. My call to action for you today is rather a gentle nudge to keep you standing for what you believe is the right thing to do in your business. Believe in your principles, get vocal about it, and tell your story. Because today, being small is an advantage. As usual, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at podcast at themindfulfounder.com. Podcast at themindfulfounder.com. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Did you like this episode? If you enjoyed listening to Mindful Business Founder, it will mean a lot to me if you can share this with your friends who are also in the sustainability journey. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Bye-bye now. Bye.